<laughs> Good morning. How are you all? Happy Super Bowl Sunday. Yeah. If you're even watching that, you don't have to. I, I understand if you're not. I'm, <laughs> some people are. I see some jerseys. Online campus, glad you're joining us. People watching later. Man, um, I'm Joel. I'm the Connect Pastor. I'm glad to be here as well. Um, we, because we have been doing this really difficult but really like tantalizing series called How Not to Read the Bible. And I even got a question like, are you telling people not to read the Bible? No. No, no, no. That's not what we're doing. We're tackling really difficult things in the Bible and telling people how not to read, how not to make mistakes while we're reading it. Because the Bible is a confusing thing. There, some of the really difficult questions that have come up here have been like, is the Bible anti-women? Is it misogynistic? Like, is the Bible reliable? Like, can it, like, jibe with science? And uh, just this past week, Scott talked about, like, is Christianity, like, really exclusive? Like, is it okay to make absolute claims about Jesus being the only way to God? And, man, I, I just, I know from the discussions that we've had in our small group and by talking with some people, I know this has been um, some good and yet difficult stuff. And so I encourage you, man, if you missed some of these or if you want to rewatch or send to some friends, you can go to our app. You can go to the website click on media or messages and stuff like that. You can find all of them there. But we want to lay a baseline of what we're doing, what we believe just about the whole Bible, and so that everybody knows where we're coming from, where the starting point is. We believe what the Bible says about itself, that it is the source, uh, that it is the inspired word of God, and it's the source of how we live out our everyday lives. Uh, we believe that the Bible was guided in its writing by the Holy Spirit. This makes it reliable and true. And so that's what we believe. That's what thousands of years of Christians and the original audiences believed about this book. Maybe most importantly for me, I, I believe this because I have tested its principles. I have obeyed it and felt like life was given to me. I have also disobeyed it and had the world come crashing down on me before. And it just makes me realize, okay, yeah, this all like seems to work out. This guy, uh, this God of the Bible, he seems to be bigger. So that's our baseline that's where we're starting from. But that does not mean that everything in that book is easy to understand. Yeah, I was going to say, we probably should get some amens about that. Like, not everything in that book is easy to understand or even easy to digest. I mean, there's hard-to-believe miracles in there. There's hard-to-hear stories about treatment of people in there. There's a lot of instructions, way too many in my personal opinion, about how to build a temple in the desert in some of the Old Testament books. Um, there's an there's origin story that requires faith, and, uh, but I believe that that, that makes this book, it, it demands us to take it seriously, and it requires our attention and our study. And so in doing that, um, the author of this book, How Not to Read the Bible, that we've taken a lot of this stuff from, Dan Kimball, he outlines four ways that we can properly approach the Bible. The, the first idea is to remember the Bible is a library, not a book. You remember these, right? That the Bible is a, a bunch of books. It's written at different periods of time by different authors in different languages for different purposes, all right? And um, do you remember this one? The Bible was written for us, but not necessarily... Very good, yeah. And I know it's popping up on the screen, I know. But I think, I think some of you probably already know this anyways, right? Because this is week five. Uh, the Bible was written for us, but not directly to us. The Bible in its laws and in its law books and it's in its letters and in its poetry, like 
It was written for us and for our benefit, but we aren't its original audience, and that matters in the way that we understand it, right? Um, never read a Bible verse. Yeah, 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 because, because you, can make, you can make politicians if you just, like, clip, like, one half of a sentence or, or some part of their You can make them say a bunch of different things that it's not actually trying to say. Um, the same with the Bible. If you read a Bible verse in, in isolation and not take into context... And also to forget about the whole scope and the story of what the Bible is actually pointing to, which is number four, all the Bible leads to Jesus. I don't know. I hope we were saying that together, but no, that's fine. We'll, we'll move on. That's the fourth point. All the Bible leads to Jesus. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's, some, that's where we're coming at some of these verses. Um, and today's topic, today's question is, should the Bible be rated NC-17? <laughs> Is God a violent God? Because I'll tell you, that is a difficult thing to talk about. It is, uh, it's got a heaviness with it. And so with that, let me put a little disclaimer. If you're watching later or if you've got little kids here, some of these Bible verses are not for bedtime reading. Um, and so if you, if you choose to, uh, to, to walk out for parts of this, I totally understand. I want to put that out there. Um, but the other thing is, I want to add to the, some of the heaviness, is to tell you about this video that went viral a couple years ago. This, this uh, college student wanted to go out on the streets and video people's reactions to different parts of um, things that he read from the Koran. And so he goes around and he interviews some people and he reads passages like this. If you reject my decrees and abhor my laws, you will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. And uh, a lot of the people on the streets are just like, you know, get buggy eyes. And then he reads some more. God has delivered them over to you. You must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. And then another one that he read to some people. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. And then the interviewer drops the bombshell that these aren't passages from the Koran these are in the Bible. How many of you saw that coming? Okay, more than, than, than I expected. God, as I, honestly, I, I've read the Bible multiple times. I didn't remember the, some of these things being in there. But the saddest part about all of it was that so many of the people who listened to this and then found out that these were from the Bible, they just said, hmm. you know, it's, it was shocking, but like it didn't affect their daily lives. They didn't think that the Bible was worth exploring and finding out what it was all about, and they just moved on with their lives. And you know what, church? We will not do that. No, we will address this. We will talk about this and answer the question of whether or not the God that's described in the Bible is violent. So I got I to gotta admit, man, there are, there are difficult things in the Bible. If you, if you just have read, like, on the fourth page of that book, Cain kills his brother Abel. I don't know if you've gotten that far or not, but like that's difficult stuff. That's a fact that as I was telling uh, my girls at bedtime when we were talking about the Bible one time, my wife was like, and that's exactly the kind of thing I didn't want to address right now. I'm like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I get, I get why you would want to not address that with eight-year-olds, yeah. Um, but we're going to hit this thing head on. Um, and yeah, there's difficult stuff. There's wars. Uh, there's murder. Uh, there's, there's really 
hard to understand. There's even commands from God in the Bible to kill. And so let's first just break the violence that's in the Bible down into those two categories. The first category being like violence that's done by people. It's not condoned uh, by the Bible, but it's recorded there. Okay, so that's, that's one category. Like Cain killing his brother Abel is one of great examples of that. God doesn't think that's good. In fact, um, Cain knows that he's going to face consequences for it. God still shows mercy, some mercy to Cain, but yeah, that's recorded in the Bible, not condoned. <clears throat> now, the smaller category of violence that's done in the Bible, that's done in God's name or commanded by God, stuff like the Amicalites in the Old Testament, stuff like um, the clearing out of the promised land by the Israelites. Um, even maybe you could throw Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament in the book of Acts. There's these people who have just come to faith, and they decide they want to sell um, all their property and give the money to the church, but then they keep money back, but they lie about it to the apostles in the presence of the Holy Spirit, and they drop dead right there. And so you're like, well, did God just kill those people for lying about that? There's, uh, there's that kind of stuff in the Bible, and there's four approaches that you could take, and we're going we're gonna to talk about some of these approaches. The first one that you can take when addressing this violence um, is one that you have probably heard of. Uh, one that you've probably heard people around your office or uh, people online saying that um, just making the inference that there is a God of the Old Testament and that God is vengeful and wrathful and angry. You've heard that? And, and then, then evidently there's a God of the New Testament that's like basically Cupid um, personified. You know, like, oh, he's just love. But church, that's just not accurate. Um, that's not a good depiction of the Bible. And it's a terrible understanding of who God is. Uh, I'll, I'll show you, because the Bible talks about God being unchanging so often um, that I'll just handpick some of these verses. Malachi 3.6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. Psalm 55.19 says, God who is enthroned from old, who does not change. In the New Testament, Hebrews 13.8 says, for Jesus doesn't change. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow, he's always totally himself. In James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like the shifting of shadows. The God of the Bible, that the Bible describes, is, is not changing ever. He is the same. Maybe sometimes people interact with him differently. But you want more proof? The Bible uses the word love equally in both the Old and the New Testament. But the word mercy is used 261 times translated um, mercy, and 72% of those times are in the Old Testament. I've even heard somebody like jokingly say, if you wanted to make an argument for God being different from the Old or New Testament, you could say that the God of the New Testament that talks about eternal punishment and damnation more often, he's the one that's more vengeful and wrathful. But just, just avoid that mistake altogether. There is not two different gods. Um, he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and uh, he's got one plan that he's been working towards. So, the second approach, though, is just to say, when you come to the passages like this, you know what? God is God, and he can do what he wants. Yeah, you can say amen to that, because that is true. But that is not the way that we approach every single thing that we don't initially understand in the Bible. That's not being helpful, either, to people who are seeking and wanting answers, I'll give you a really good example of how we don't want to just throw our hands up in the air with everything and be like, oh, we can't understand it. God is God. Is God. Because 
The God that described in this book, he wants you to understand him. He wants to be known. That's why we have this. Um, one of those passages from the video, it's Psalm 137.9. It says, happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Imagine all you do is read that one verse. And you're like, uh, that does not sound good at all. I, I, don't, I don't like reading books that have that kind of gratuitous violence in it usually. And so I'm just going to avoid it. But imagine that maybe, does that fit with God's character? No, I don't think so. So maybe I should read and know more about it. And I'll tell you what, it took me 10 minutes of Googling. That's all, like, that's the in-depth, like, collegiate research that I did here. Um, Psalm 137.9 is got a background to it. And the background is that the Israelites um, have had just had their capital city of Jerusalem sacked by the Babylonians, and the Babylonians have committed great violence against them and their children. And they're being hauled off. The people who have survived have been, are being hauled off into captivity and slavery in their capital city of Babylon. And as they're marching, some of them are being mocked, and, and the Babylonians are saying, hey, we hear that you sing and write these uh, religious songs and stuff like that. Why don't you write us one? And so a psalmist, out of their anguish and their anger and crying out for justice to God, writes this and says, yeah, I hope that the same thing happens to you that happens to me. Uh, no, at no point in psalms after that does God like, applaud that and be like, yeah, that's a good idea. I'm going to go do that. It's not condoned, but neither is it edited out of the human experience. I think that speaks to the character of our God. And I just want to point out that God is God and he's going to do what he wants and we can't understand it is true in sometimes. But do not take that approach with everything because at worst, uh, at, at best, you're going to be like ignorant on some things. And at worst, you're going to be unhelpful to hurting and searching people. The people who want to know this God. And I believe that part of our job it's to help these seeking people find the God that you and I are coming to know. Now, the third approach you can take um, in explaining away some of the violence in the Bible is to look at some of these passages where God commands the Israelites um, to kill and just say, you know what, I think that the Bible writers and the authors, they recorded that wrong. I think, I think they were covering up what they did. And uh, here's an example in 1 uh, Samuel 15, 2-3. The Lord Almighty says, I will punish the Amicalites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up out of Egypt. So now go and attack the Amicalites and totally destroy them. All that belongs to them, do not spare them. Put to death men, women, children, and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. And one way you could just go about this is be like, you know what? Um, these people were at war with other peoples around them, and they just slapped God's name on it, and that didn't actually happen. Well, one, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense in the fact that um, anytime that you write something, anybody that you write it to that reads it's going to like, be like, hey, I was there. I, I know that that didn't happen or that doesn't sound right. But then the other thing is like God is literally saying like he's quoting the history behind it. He, he's telling you why he's doing it. Um, whether or not you and I are comfortable with that, that's a whole other question. I understand. But the biggest thing, too, is that you should anytime that you are approaching the Bible and you are saying, I can make the determination of what's true in this book and what's false, you're on dangerous ground. Um, that is 
putting you and your spirit and your understanding above um, what God is. I think it's perfectly reasonable to imagine that if there is a God who is omnipotent and all-powerful, all-knowing, and he wants to be known, and he wants to give people a book that properly represents him, I think it's totally reasonable to believe that that God can then deliver a book to you and I and for the ages that does not contain major flaws that describe his character. So do not, I, I do not go about this approach of like, you know what, I, I think they probably, that's just incorrect, because that's like sawing off the branch that you're standing on when we're talking about faith. If, if the Bible is not reliable, if, if there's things that you have to decide are true and not true in it, then it's not a very good uh, book to base your faith on. And that, that's, that's what I believe. That's what other people have said about it. And, and the even better reason to believe that the Old Testament actually is accurate and reliable is because Jesus believed it. Yeah, just think about it. Think about all the different times that Jesus talked about Moses and the prophets and the laws. And how many times does Jesus correct them? How many times does Jesus have to say, you know what, I know you've heard it said, but that actually, they got that a little bit incorrect. Never. The, the only things that Jesus ever does is say, man, look at what they've said. Now I'm going to raise the bar. You've heard this said. Now I'm telling you to do this. Jesus believed the Old Testament and the prophets because he says so in Matthew 5, 17. He says, don't misunderstand why I have come. I have not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. Another beautiful statement when you think about it of how this is all building to one story. And a story that you and I are still a part of. But look, it's not the other, only indication either that Jesus believed what, was going, what the Bible was at his time, like the Old Testament that he had in there. Because um, when he's describing the um, event of how he's going to be killed and put in the tomb for three days, he, he tells the, one of the most fantastical stories from the Old Testament, the story of Jonah being swallowed by a big fish and then living there. He, he takes that story and he quotes it as historical fact. In Matthew 12, 39 through 40, Jesus answered, evil and sinful people are the ones who want to see a miracle for a sign, but no sign will be given to them except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jonah was in the stomach of the big fish for three days and three nights, and in the same way, the Son of Man will be in the grave three days and three nights. I think any time that we approach the Bible again and say, you know what, I can, I can make my own determination, I think we're just setting ourselves up for trouble. So don't, don't go that route. Because the fourth approach is the most holistic one, and that is get to know the God of the whole Bible. Know the God of this whole story, not just of one story. Because maybe in doing that, we'll realize, man, this God is a little bit more incomprehensible. He's a little bit bigger than I even gave him credit for. He's a little bit bigger than, than what I think. Maybe what he says about his ways being higher than my ways, man, maybe, maybe that is true. Now, look, we're not going to just dance past this. We'll deal with one of these situations where God... Um, it tell, instructs the Israelites to kill a lot of people. But just know this, that knowing and trusting the heart of God is the best way to approach it. It's, and it's where our faith really has to kick in. It, this isn't for everybody. 
maybe not in all walks uh, of their spiritual life. This is for people who have made the decision, I'm going to follow Jesus. So, the Israelites, when they're given these instructions, let's, let's look at the giving of the promised land. Because when God gives these people instructions to totally wipe out a people group, it's confusing. But these are people that are coming out of years of bondage. They don't have a land of their own. And so, let's put some of our techniques into practice here. The fact that the Bible is a library of books, not just one single book. The fact that the Bible was written for us, but not directly to us. And then, specifically, we're going to practice never reading a Bible verse in isolation and keeping in mind that the whole Bible points to Jesus. Okay, so imagine that you had a neighbor who approached you and said, hey, I know that you go to church and that you follow Jesus. I want some help with that. And you're like, that's great. And you walk them through how Jesus saved us and ask them if they want to get baptized. You come up here on a Friday night and we baptize them in, in, the, in the baptismal. Then you say, you know what, I'm going to pray for you and we're going to do some Bible study together. But when you go home tonight, why don't you just uh, read your Bible some on your own? Okay, and imagine that neighbor then picks up the Bible and does that crazy thing where they, you know, just let the Bible fall open, and then they put their finger on a verse. You've done this before, haven't you? Yeah, I know you have. Imagine that the verse that they put their finger on is Deuteronomy 7.2. It says, And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you, you have defeated them. Then you must destroy them totally. And that guy is like, your neighbor just closes the book up and says, you know what, never mind. I, uh, I take that all back because uh, that doesn't make any sense. That sounds crazy to me. Well, let's first practice reading a Bible verse not in isolation. Let's read the stuff around it. Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 through 6. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, I don't know, Hivites, Jebusites, Seven nations larger and stronger than you, okay? So let's keep in mind here now the mission that God is, is God. He's driving them out, and these are people that they can't like, drive out on their own. Um, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you, and you have defeated them, you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them, and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Why? For they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do then. Do to them. And then he quotes a bunch of things that he wants them done to their, their possessions. He says, break down their altars. Smash their sacred stones, cut down the Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a, holy, a people holy, which means set apart like for a special purpose. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. And with that carries then not only all the promises of the past of Abraham that, that God promised him that his descendants would be as numerous as the, as the sands on the seashore and that God would bless the whole world through them. This promise then goes through this time and even into our ours of bringing the Messiah. And now this, this Messiah is for all people. I'm telling you, you can read this and just get stuck on the command to kill. But you should also then see a people that are wholly dependent upon God. 
You should see a God who has got the whole future in his mind and has commands that end up being what's best for the Israelites. Because a lot of us have been around the Old Testament long enough to know that the Israelites, do they completely follow all of these instructions? They do not. And in church, in person, online, do they then face the exact consequences that God outlines? Yeah, they do. And, and so, man, I don't, I don't know how to describe or how to explain God's instructions, but I, I know what happens. And I, I, again, I, I'm trying to keep in mind the God of the whole Bible and, and get to know him for who he is in all of these things and not in just this one scenario. Let me, let me also share some things that some Bible scholars have pointed out that, about these instructions. One is that almost all the times in the Bible, uh, the Old Testament, where God orders the destruction of people, it's from a very limited period of history. It's not like this is happening throughout um, all time. That the clearing out of the promised land are the people who refused to join or submit to the God of Israel. You can see God is working missionally here, not racially. And just for one small proof of that, look at the story of Rahab, the prostitute in one of these cities. The Israelite spies come through, and she recognizes, man, your God, that's Yahweh, he is bigger and better than our gods, and she wants to be a part of it. So she cuts a deal with them. And now she is not only included as part of them and is saved um, in the destruction of that city, but Rahab becomes a part of the lineage that leads to King David. She becomes part of the lineage that then leads to King Jesus. This is a missionally oriented um, thing, and it's not a racially oriented one. So um, remember that the people groups occupying the promised land, they are wicked in their worship of false gods. I I know it's very tempting to look at some of this stuff and be like, hey, um, why is God orienting the destruction of innocent people? And and first of all, you should always stop and, and ask yourself, wait a second, do I get to make that determination? Like, are you and I the judge of what's good and what's bad? No, you, you and I aren't. I hope, I hope we're not. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, but, but also, um, you should know that, man, I can't explain why God commands the, the killing of, of all these people. But you should know what the worship of, for instance, the God of Melech is. Because they would heat up this... Uh, iron structure to molten temperatures and place infants in its arms. God definitely wanted that stopped as well. So just know that, man, we can't make this determination that some people are innocent and God doesn't know what he's doing. Um, God gave warnings too. He's patient with people. He, he looks for change. You can see that in the story of Jonah and the Ninevites, right? Like Jonah's so scared of how the Ninevites are going to react if they hear somebody preaching about this, this God of Yahweh that he, he'll run away. He runs in the opposite direction. And then when Jonah gets his life right and goes and preaches to the Ninevites, he finishes his story by going up to a hillside, and he wants to see God rain destruction down on these evil, wicked people who have been the enemy of his people for a while. And so um, Jonah's sitting up there, and he, he knows that he's preached the word of God, and then the funniest thing happens. Not for Jonah, but a good thing for God. The people repent. 
and, and God spares them. I think Jonah's expecting like a Sodom and Gomorrah kind of raining down a fire, and he doesn't get it because God is merciful like that. In Ezekiel 33, 11 says, Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways to li- and live. Turn, turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? And in the New Testament, Peter writes that the Lord is not slow in doing what he promised, as the way that some people understand slowness. But no, God is being patient with you. He, is, he does not want anyone to be lost, but he wants all people to change their hearts and their lives. So God desires this change. And, and, and you should also know that some people have pointed out this is, a, this is a military strike to rid the land of its occupants. And not just a mass killing. In fact, one of the words, one of the words used to describe their uh, to completely destroy has this idea of clearing out territory. Now maybe that means tomato versus tomato to you. But you should also keep in mind, too, that it's the same today as it is then. Anytime that there's going to be a war, you take the women and children as far away from that as possible, in general. And that's the case in the Old Testament. But look, I understand that some of this stuff just rings hollow, and you're like, okay, I get that. I want to believe that. I still, I still don't understand. I, I still don't know why. And I, I, I can't, like, put into your brain why, because I don't even, like, know how to answer that myself. I do know that there's a couple attributes of God that I, I want to spend more time myself exploring. One is just his justice. And the other is just how big he is, how infinite he is, because those things boggle my mind as well. And I, and I feel like from what I, I do understand about the story that they're important to understanding. I was looking at the book of Job earlier this week for something completely different, but it struck me that the same question of why is at the heart of it. Everyone who cracks open the book of Job or hears the story of Job and all his sufferings has the same exact question of why, God? Why, why do you allow it? Why does it happen even Job, after he's tormented by his, his friends asking dumb questions and, and accusing him of deserving it, Job still has the same question. And if you get to like the late 30s there in the book of Job, you'll see near the end of the book, Job demands, God, I want you to come and answer me. But God's answer to Job comes in the form of taking him on a tour, a tour of the natural world and, and the wonders of it and how it works and how God runs it. And then, then after that, he goes to Job and says, so you want answers? I'll tell you what. Why don't I ask you some questions, and then you can inform me. And he says, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I told the morning where to go? And have you ever given instructions to the dawn? Have you ever gone... And walked through the storehouses of snow or sleet or rain. Have you ever told the sun to rise? He gives Job all of these questions. And one of my favorites is, is thirty-eight sixteen, And he says, have you journeyed to the springs of the sea? Or have you walked in the recesses of the deep? Because when I read that, I was like, God, you do that. 
You walk in the recesses of the deep. What's that like? But the whole answer to Job and to all of us who ask the question why from this, is, I think it's all the same. It's like, I don't know if I can tell you why, but I can tell you this, that your questioning of why and your understanding, it's based on exactly that, your understanding and your perspective. But I think the perspective that, that answers the question of why is much bigger than what you and I have. And I think it's fine then to continue to ask these questions, to continue to research like we talked about earlier, that, that this, this book demands that we, that we take it seriously. But, but we should know that when we're searching, like, it's exactly that. It's from you and I's understanding and you and I's perspective. And I think that there's a God behind it who wants you to ask those questions. I think that the God of truth is not afraid of people finding him. So go ahead and ask, ask away. I think it's very important to keep the whole scope of God and the story that we get in Scripture, what God has done, is doing, and has got planned for the future. I think it's important to keep all of that in mind and to know the God of that whole story, not just one. Because you and I may miss and not understand some things, but that's because you and I are finite. You and I are not infinite. You and I are not immortal. You and I are not all-knowing, but our God, our God is. He's, he's the same God who created people out of, in this world out of nothing. He, he created man and, and woman. He gave us his own image. And then, then, the shocker of it all, he gave us free will. And he's the same God who called Abram and was faithful to him, even when Abram took a hold of things and tried to do it his own way. He was faithful to Abraham for generations. He's the same God who called Israel out of oppression and slavery time and time again, but especially when he called him out of Egypt and he split the Red Sea and he guided him with clouds of, of fire and pillars of, of clouds. I mean, he's that same God. He's the same God who sent his son down to walk among us. He's the God who granted forgiveness to the repentance of the Ninevites. He's the God who forgave Peter when he denied his son three times and continued to give Peter his mission. He's the same God who in his mercy stopped Saul of Tarsus in his tracks and gave him a new identity. He's, he's the God who offers this invitation to all, including a promiscuous Samaritan woman, to drink from the cup of eternal life. He, he is the same God, and I'm telling you, church, He's not going to fail in his mission. He's accomplished so much in, through the death of Jesus and his resurrection on the cross. And now he's continuing his mission to save all people because he wants none to come to destruction. And you and I actually continue to play a part in the story. We're not, we're not just onlookers. He has called you to follow him. And so the question is, like, will you? I know there's things that are difficult to trust, but will you? Now, even when the world around you doesn't make sense and it's spinning, will you choose to trust him? Because he has invited us to do it, and he has invited us in to this wonderful mystery, one that you and I have a part to play in. And we're going to continue 
and our worship this morning. And in doing that, we, we take communion to remember that event that Jesus did for us. Um, and we do it anytime that we gather together. And it's what Jesus did when he was with his disciples in the very last meal that they had together. They are breaking bread. And Jesus says, look, as when you get together, remember this bread is broken and think about my body that, that was broken for you. You may have uh, picked up one of these communion cups on the way in. If not, there, there's some, and you, if you want to do communion with us, there's some in the seat racks underneath the chairs in front of you. But we're going to do that right now. If you would peel open the bottom of that cup, there's a miniature piece of bread, and we're going to eat it and remember what Jesus has done for us. So would you do that right now? one more symbol that he gave them when they were passing around the cup of wine. He told them, whenever you drink this, think about the blood that's poured out for their forgiveness of many. So would you peel open the top of that juice cup? Would you take that in remembrance with us? continue in our prayer. God, we, we thank you for the things that we can wrap our minds around and for the, the giving of your son because we needed a worthy sacrifice and we can't thank you enough. We can't even understand that totally, but we know that you did it and we believe it and we want to trust you. God, help us in the things that we have trouble trusting and the things that we have trouble believing. God, we, we ask that you just increase our faith. And Jesus, we, we thank you for this opportunity to be a part of something bigger than ourselves, to be a part of this local body, this opportunity to continue to worship you because you deserve it. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.